0: As I said when you're at MSG if if you're expected to do X do Y and Z also and and that's just always been the way I've been you know and that that doesn't mean growing KAI to be the largest business doing what we do but I think it's being the best at what we do with what we have and and I do think the the delivery on what we promise and what we do for our clients is unparalleled in the industry um, for a firm of our size and I can sleep well at night put my head on the pillow knowing that So, I think it's just this inner competitive spirit to be the best that just pushes me. So, whatever you're doing, just kick ass at it.
1: Welcome to the Driving Force Podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Chase Rosa, a former private equity analyst, now exploring human performance through podcasting, coaching, jujitsu, and endurance athletics. This podcast will feature conversations with uniquely driven and authentic individuals across sports, business, and wellness. Who continue to achieve great things in their respective fields by presenting their stories uncensored and uncut i hope to inspire you to take a step back look within and evaluate your path and journey today's guest is dave cartagainer having grown up in the industry dave has always had a passion for travel he went on his first safari at the age of seven and has been exploring the world ever since having now visited more than 50 countries today dave is president of Kartgainer Associates or KAI, a leader in marketing and sales representation for the travel industry. The KAI portfolio includes exclusive safari lodges in Africa, award-winning palaces in India, luxury cruise ships and destination management companies around the globe. Dave hasn't always worked in travel and was reluctant after graduating college to join the company his dad started. So prior to KAI, he spent several years quickly rising through the sales ranks at Madison Square Garden before eventually joining the family business in 2010. In this interview, we get into the impact that travel has had in his life, the benefits of travel, his years grinding it out selling tickets at MSG, and his company KAI, and how COVID has changed everything in the travel industry. And so, without further ado, my interview with Dave Cartagener. So let's start at the beginning here. Uh, Where did you grow up?
0: Um, so I was actually born in Queens, but only lived there for a couple of years of my life. And then my folks moved out to uh, Long Island. So I lived a couple of years in a small town called Massapequa Park. But okay. then most of my life I spent in a town called Dix Hills. That's where I went to most of my uh, grade school life. So kind of in the center of Long Island. If you made a bullseye of Long Island outside of Manhattan and you hit the, uh, sorry, if you made a dartboard and hit the bullseye, you hit Dix Hills.
1: Awesome. Okay. And traveling's played a big part of your life for pretty much your entire life, right?
0: Yeah, definitely. So, I mean, I've been traveling as long as I can remember. I was in Portugal when I was one. I don't remember that at all. (laughs) Um, But my dad was born in Germany. So, I mean, when I was really young, we used to go over to visit his other siblings or um, his sister and his cousins that lived there. My first safari to Africa was at the age of seven. Um, So, I've, I've been going to Africa literally my whole life. I've been more than 50 times now. Um, And then, you know, we traveled domestically. My parents had a vacation home out in Scottsdale, Arizona. So anytime we had a school break, we'd go out there. So, yeah, I mean, I've definitely been traveling for as long as I can remember.
1: Yeah. How like how often would you be, like, on the road traveling growing up, would you say?
0: Um, I mean, we we would definitely do every school break, at at least something domestic. Um, But honestly, after that first trip to Africa when I was seven, I'd say I went once per year to somewhere in Africa. I mean, I, I remember one summer I was home on summer vacation and my dad had some meetings in, in South Africa. Three days he was going for it. It's a 17-hour flight. And he says, hey, it's <laughs> me and my sister. You guys don't have much going on. Do you want to go? <laughs> like, sure. So literally on a whim, we took <laughs> a 17-hour flight each way to spend three nights at a little resort called Sun City. I mean, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's outrageous. So looking back and thinking about having yeah. that type of child and how different it is from most of the people I know.
1: Yeah. No, that's, it's that's, that's crazy. It must. So it became kind of like second nature for you then almost.
0: Yeah, it really did. You know, a lot of people hate flying, but it's, it's part of the adventure and I just love it. Cause it means I'm going somewhere usually cool. I mean, if I'm just traveling to go to a conference or meeting or something, maybe not, but, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't imagine living another way to be honest.
1: Yeah. Did, so did you enjoy all of that travel growing up?
0: Yeah, for the most part. Um, you know, there's some trips are better than others, but um, mm-hmm. I, I think um, obviously most, most often it was with my family and, you know, I have a younger brother, two older sisters and it, it helped us really come together and bond. And I mean, I'm so tight with my family to this day. And I think a lot of that goes back to those experiences we shared. Um, and, and I just think it, it really helps you understand other cultures and becoming mm-hmm. more accepting to new ideas. Um, You know, going over to people's houses for dinner in Namibia or Germany or even Florida for that matter and seeing the way they live, playing with kids in their backyard and having totally different games, different foods, everything. I think it makes you much more open to trying new things even now in my life and just definitely more accepting um, of different ideas, cultures, concepts. And Mm -hmm. I I think it's really, really played a huge part into who I am today. And I mean, if, if there's anything I could recommend to families or young parents, it's even if it's a road trip, it doesn't have to be Africa or Asia, um, you know, go to other States, visit other places and don't always stay in hotels. You can stay with other families, relatives, just seeing the way people live. It really opens your mind to different things, which is cool.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I was going to follow up with, with that question, kind of, you know, how, how traveling to like all of these different places, like form a different perspective on how you kind of see the world and, and relate to others.
0: Yeah, it's definitely different. You have a total different viewpoint. Mm -hmm. I mean, going through some poor areas and third world countries and seeing the way they live, you start to not take certain things for granted anymore. And I think that's a really important lesson. Um, Just seeing how much you have, even if at times you feel like you don't have much compared to your friends or your cousin or whomever, you're Mm -hmm. still pretty well off growing up in this country with the freedoms that we have. Um, But even more so just like I said, even going to the South, going to a New Orleans or Florida or the West Coast and seeing what they eat for dinner versus what you eat on Long Island, um, those types sure. of experiences, mm-hmm. uh, they really do shape who you become and, and they're, they're critically important. Um, I have a, an industry colleague who's become a really good friend and he pulled his two kids out of school when they were nine and 12 for a year, sold their house, put everything in storage and they spent a year traveling around the world. And I mean, wow. can you imagine the experience you've had? Most people, Americans, you tell that like, are they crazy? You can't miss school. <laughs> you learn way more taking a two week holiday to another country than you'll learn in a whole half year of school. So to do an around the world trip. Um, I, I think that, that that's incredible. And I know that's not realistic for most people, but that's an extreme example. Um, but I think yeah. stuff like that is just great stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I would completely agree with that too. So have you ever like lived in a different country for an extended period of time?
0: I'm not funny enough. I mean, it's something I'm open to. I've always thought I would. Um, but actually, given kind of the world we live in today and the work from home and my total routine and daily life changing, um, I'm going to be changing that very short term. But uh, for the month of October, my wife and I are actually moving to Barbados. Oh, <laughs> um, no way. Yeah. You know, we, we have a decent apartment, but it's a small apartment in Hoboken, New Jersey now. And I'm sick of just being stuck there. So... We did a bunch of research on places we could fly nonstop that we could get into, and costs, and safety, and everything else, and we we landed on Barbados. So we just rented a a little like cottage on the beach. For so we're going to move there for the month of October, and hey, if we love it, who knows?
1: That's awesome. Did the uh, I was I was reading there's some like remote work policy Barbados enacted too. Did that have Did that play a part in it? It,
0: it did. We're actually not taking advantage of that program, um, oh, okay. but that was, that was what initially kind of grabbed my attention and started doing the research on Barbados. I've never been there. It's not near the top of my list, but uh-huh. that's kind of what drew me to it. Um, yeah, because after doing uh, the research on it, it gives you a one-year visa to stay there and work remotely, and there's a few requirements you have to meet, which we would have met, but it's a, it would have been a $3,000 fee for that visa for the two of us. So mm-hmm. Then we kept digging, and as an American. You can go for total free, get a visa on arrival for up to six months. (laughs) So it's like, why would we pay the three thousand to go for a year? We'll go for a month or a couple months, and then if we wanted to go back, you can leave for a couple days and then come back, and you don't have to do that work program.
1: Right. Yeah. So so funny enough, um, my my parent my family used to have a home in Barbados. Oh wow. Uh so I've been going there literally every year since since I was born. So (laughs) I know the island really well. So if you have any questions. I'm not
0: gonna bore your listeners, but yes, I will be um, poking you offline before we go.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I know all the places where to go and you know, good restaurants and, and all of that. So definitely, definitely reach out.
0: I will be hitting you up. Thanks for that.
1: Yeah, yeah. More than just a way to like reset. I see travel to new destinations. As a, like an excellent facilitator of self-discovery, do you, do you see it in a similar way?
0: Yeah, with, with, without a question. I mean, I think you learn more about yourself when you're in an uncomfortable situation or unfamiliar, not necessarily uncomfortable, but when, when you're, going back to what I said earlier, exposing yourself to new things and trying things you never would have, you learn what you're capable of and you might find something you're really passionate about around a corner you thought you'd never turn. Um, which is really neat for my 35th birthday, just three years ago, I I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro with a couple of buddies. And I mean, that was by far the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, both physically and mentally. And, but I, you know, you, you discover things about yourself and what you're capable of by putting yourself Mm -hmm. in these situations. So yeah, without a question, I believe that.
1: Yeah. And so shifting gears here a little, as you, as you get into high school and college, were you working in the family business?
0: Um, no, but you know, during summer break, I'd I'd go into the office with my pops, um, just to help out around the office a little bit here and there. If he was going somewhere cool for like a travel conference, something sometimes like me and my sister, I guess I would tag along, but I was not doing any work at all. Um, and he, he only started the company in 95. Uh, we're celebrating our 25th anniversary this year. So I was already, you know, 13 years old. Um, so just for like, the end of middle school and a couple years of high school like i would i would pop into the office a couple times a summer but definitely not working
1: right okay so i guess at that time like high school and college did you have any sort of desire to go into the family business
0: no i wanted absolutely nothing to do with it um never (laughs) thought i would end up there i told everyone i wasn't going to work there um never part of my plan at all um but yeah, you know, as I've been told, you never try to make a plan, and, and you rarely <laughs> stick to it if you do. Um, yeah. But no, especially out of college, um, I, I didn't really. Although I love travel, I didn't necessarily want to work in it, um, and I, I just didn't like the stigma, if you will, attached to going to work for daddy um, or okay. like being the easy way. Um, there's yeah, nothing yeah. easy about what he does or what we do, but I, I just didn't like that that kind of connotation that that it carried with it. So. For that reason and others, I just wasn't that interested in the business. I, I thought there was zero way, and definitely out of college, it was not anything I considered. He he wanted me to um, to come straight out of college and work with him, but uh, I, I shot that down repeatedly.
1: And why was that? Was it was the main driver for that? The this I guess the stigma.
0: Um. Yeah, I, I think so. It, it was you had attached just... to kind of working for for your dad in business. Yeah, I, I just think it was just the mostly that, the, the perception that it would have carried with that I was just taking the easy way out, that it was, you know, go work mm-hmm. for the family business, okay. Um, and, and I think I just have a bit more of an adventurous spirit where if I was to say at 21 years old, all right, I'm going to go take over your, the family business. All right, that's the next 45 years of my life. <laughs> like I would have never known what else was out there. Um, and that also was right. not appealing to me.
1: Right, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And you went to college at Tulane,
0: i did Roll is that wave. where you
1: <laughs> <laughs> is is that is that where you met michael buckley
0: yeah yeah um i met mike i think on the first day of college actually um oh wow we we were we were in the same dorm on the same floor about two doors down and it was one of those awkward first conversations oh you know, where are you from oh <laughs> uh, do you like sports oh do you like jay-z okay we just became best friends <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, right. so we we lived a couple doors down um, freshman year, and then we ended up rooming together junior and senior year, and then we actually lived together for about four years after college in Hoboken, mm-hmm. and he's still one of my best friends to this day. Yep, yeah. and we actually get to collaborate on a couple cool work things. Um, as previous listeners know, um, he has an awesome tech app company, Cadence for Events, and yeah. part of part of my business is event. Um, we throw huge events for the industry, so we
1: use his platform, which is fun to work with friends. Yeah. That's cool. And, um, so while you were at Tulane, did you study abroad?
0: I didn't. Um, and it's funny based on what I've already said, you probably think I regret it. And I don't, um, <laughs> new, new Orleans is such a special place. Um, and honestly, I don't think I would ever live there like as an adult or raise a family or anything, but for those four years of college and just for the, that time in my life, it was the most perfect place to be. And to give up one eighth of that time to do a semester abroad, like as much as I love international travel and learning new cultures, I wouldn't have wanted to give up those four years that I had at Tulane and in New Orleans. Um, so I think it does add value for a lot of people, but for me, it just wasn't the right thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you you just enjoyed, I guess, new New Orleans and that environment at Tulane just so much that.
0: Yeah. So some might say I over enjoyed it. If you ask my folks, <laughs> <laughs> No, New Orleans to this day is my favorite city in America, without a question. It's one of the few cities in, in this country that, you know, have a real character and a real vibe to it. Um, and it's, you know, some people think of it as bourbon street and a party in Mardi Gras, which, which it can be, and it is, but literally whatever you're into, New Orleans can offer. Um, if it's food, if it's music, if it's culture, if it's history, if it's architecture, um, and if it's partying, um, it, it's right. around every corner. You, you can't avoid it, so. I sound like I work for the uh, New Orleans Tourism Bureau right now, but <laughs> <laughs> it is an amazing place.
1: Yeah. I've never been there, so. I, I guess, would put it to the top of the list. Yeah. Yeah. That, that definitely sounds like it. And so what did you think you wanted to do for a career while you were in college? Considering um, you didn't want to go into the family business.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I went in not knowing. I had a very open mind. Um, and, I think it was end of freshman year, I decided I was going to be a teacher. Um, I had a very strong draw to that. Um, I've always kind of seen myself as a bit of a leader and an educator, and I I wanted to take that to the next level. And when I started doing research into that, Tulane didn't offer that. (laughs) So (laughs) you could not get a teaching degree from Tulane. Um, It was available by taking classes at a neighboring university called Loyola, but it was a whole to-do. I would have ended up getting – half my education at a different university that I didn't want to go to. So I kind of, between freshman and sophomore year, I, I decided that wasn't the best way to go. Um, so then I started giving it more thought and thinking about what I wanted to do. And um, I wanted to do sports marketing um, or, or pursue a career in sports. So I decided the best course of action would be to go to the business school. Tulane has a great business school. So I, I went that route um, and majored in marketing, got a minor in management um, to kind of catapult me to the next
1: level or the career path I wanted to get on. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, so ultimately, you end up working at Madison Square Garden after graduation, right?
0: Yep. That was my first um, real job, my first career out of college, uh, MSG. Yeah. Some incredible days. I was there for about six and a half years.
1: So how do you ultimately end up getting that job? Um, That's just a
0: good story of persistence and not taking no for an answer. Um, as I said, I mean, I, I was determined I wanted to work in sports I and mean, that, that was the one thing I was certain of. So after, after I graduated, I moved back home to Long Island and I just started picking up the phone, calling teams, calling venues, arenas and writing letters and sending a well-written cover letter with my resume to literally any sports team within a two-hour radius of New York City. Um, so whether it was the New York Red Bull soccer team, obviously all the professional teams, the Mets, Yankees, Knicks, Jets, Giants, Islanders, Rangers, even mm-hmm. St. John's uh, sports division. And it was the 13th letter that I wrote to MSG that actually elicited a call. Um, I wow. guess it fell, in, it fell into the hands of the appropriate person who actually read the letter and thought I might have something and gave me a call, quick phone interview. And, you know, a couple of interviews, yada, yada, yada. Um, I ended up getting hired there, which was amazing. And actually wow. the funny story about that is after I'd gotten hired, um, I started at the same time as a great guy named Hunter Lockman. Um, he was the head marketing guy and he called me about six months after I'd been there. And he said, Dave, I just want to let you know, I just opened your letter and resume that you had addressed to me nearly a year ago. So don't think <laughs> I didn't call you cause I wasn't impressed, but I just got to it on the bottom of the pile on my desk. And we just had a good laugh about it. Um, so that's why persistence pays off. It's not like they're ignoring you. They just sometimes are too busy to get to you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so were you like mailing like um, actual letters to, to all these sports organizations?
0: Yeah. I mean, MSG was the one I targeted MSG as well as the giants. Um, Cause I grew up going to games for both. I'm a huge fan of both um, the Knicks and the giants. So I, I would literally just go on the websites and any name I could find of someone mm-hmm. in the marketing or sales department. I was writing a letter um, about my passion, why I would be a good fit um, and pretty much saying, I will do anything you need because I know I can prove myself once you let me in the door type thing. And then obviously attaching a resume with it and that was it. Um, And I I did get an offer from the Red Bull well before MSG. um, But after considering, I decided to turn it down. And honestly, it was getting to the point where (laughs) it almost looked like I was going to end up in the family business because I had been home now working like just part-time jobs to make some money for, I guess it was about almost three full months before okay. MSG finally called and my folks were something like, all right, you got, you got to get a real job now. Um, cause I was working at the golf club. I had worked, worked at during summers, um, while I was in college. And then it was the end of August that I, that I got the call that kind of changed everything and, and started the interview process. And, um, and then I began working in, I think it was the first week of September, like right after Labor Day. So it was mm-hmm. a quick process.
1: That's great. And did you get any like not so nice uh, emails or letters back?
0: Um, I didn't, to be honest. Most of it just goes ignored. Because mm-hmm. um, I mean, I'm in the sports industry. I mean, it's a lot of people's dreams. So I can only imagine yeah, yeah. unsolicited letters they get. And sure. And it's funny, even though it is such a big organization, you think, wow, they fill a 20,000 seat arena every single night. It's not that many people working behind the scenes to make that happen, especially in the NFL. Um with the Giants. I mean, for instance, their their staff was at that time, I think it was forty, fifty people. That's it. For this huge NFL organization. Um, so it's really competitive and not that many people. So mo- I think probably 80% of what I my outreach just went unanswered. Um mm-hmm. and no, any anything I got back was kind of a form email. Just like right. thanks for your interest, we're not hiring at this time, or thanks your you know, experience doesn't meet our qualifications or whatever it might be. So not nothing mean, nothing jumped out that it anyone's rude about it, but
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. And so what was the position that they hired you for?
0: Um, So it was actually a a temporary job. It was just an inside sales job. Um, They would hire pretty much on like nine month cycles. So you you would um, literally just make cold calls trying to sell tickets to the Knicks and the Rangers. I got hired for the sports side of it. Um, This was at the time when Isaiah Thomas was the president of the Knicks and they were one of the worst teams in the league. They were going through a um, sexual harassment scandal and lawsuit. And the NHL had its first lockout in decades. So the Rangers weren't even playing. <laughs> I got hired wow. to call people up and try to sell them tickets to either of these organizations and not just tickets. I couldn't, it wasn't individual game tickets. It was season tickets or packages of, you know, half season, 15 games. So okay. it definitely was not the most desirable product at that time. Um, <laughs> but I had incredible sales figures. Just again, through the persistence. I mean, if they expected us to make 80 calls a day, I made 160. If they expected us to make hundred calls a day, I made 200 if I could. And yeah. just continued follow up, um, diligent note-taking and, and I, I excelled even under those conditions. I mean, I remember selling front row seats, the most expensive seats for a hockey game to a guy and he paid in full and the NHL was in a lockout. They weren't even playing hockey. And I sold these seats and my boss was just like, how, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I proved myself relatively quickly, which was fortunate, I think, as well. But yeah, we, we were calling. I mean, they gave us lists of someone that bought like concert tickets to Paula Abdul because they experienced something at the garden. We had to call them and try to sell them next season tickets. Like that's not really a connect. That's a cold <laughs> lead if I've ever heard of one. But that was yeah. what we were working with.
1: Yeah, interesting. So, so were you were you calling like individual like people? Like how are how are you finding like these these people to call? Yeah
0: yeah i mean the list we were given were individuals so it was past purchasers of tickets to msg so whether they came to i mean the good list would be if they bought an individual Knicks game through Ticketmaster or something Mm -hmm. um the next best would be if they came to like a saint john's game because at least it was basketball or sports but i mean it would get down to if they came to disney on ice or as i said like a paul abdul concert (laughs) or anything if they stepped foot in the garden you know we would be phoning them up saying oh well you spent $30 Thirty dollars on Disney and Ice now give us six thousand for next season tickets. <laughs> so definitely not an easy sell. And yeah. it was a lot of a lot of um, you know getting gatekeepers and either getting the runaround or hung up on or just calls not returned. A whole lot of voicemails and answering machines. Right. But it was it was working smart. You know it was looking at what the number was, what the address was, trying to figure out if it was a business, if it was his work address or home address, and then kind of scheduling your day where you think you have the best opportunity to get that guy on the phone. Um, Mm -hmm. Because, you know, they gave us not a script, but some talking points and obviously develop a rhythm and how you can sell something. Just kind of find if there's any interest at all, can use them as a gift, you entertain clients. So there was a lot of different ways to sell it, even if you weren't a Knicks fan or a Rangers fan. Um, And it was just trying to find that right avenue in. But the first step is always just getting the right person on the phone, which sometimes can be the hardest step in all honesty.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so you were using you're using past like your main source of people were these past lists of people who had just somehow made their way to the garden.
0: Yeah. And I mean, sometimes when we exhausted those, cause we, we had a department of, I think at that time it was like 16, all fresh out of college kids. You know, this was their first job all trying to get into sports. And it was again, this temporary position that they were hoping would lead to something else at some other team or a league or whatever it might be. So we ran through these lists Um, and then, and then we would get, you know, lists from Experian, which is like the the credit rating um, credit score. You know, we would purchase a list from them and then call those those people. So now there's zero connection at all. Uh, But then, (laughs) you you know, you have to be resourceful. So you do your own homework as well. You know, you just research different new companies that just filed for a new business license in Manhattan. And it's like, okay, phone them, speak to someone there and say, Hey, this is a great way to entertain clients or secure a new business for your for your company that you just started or just moved here. Um, So I would do that just kind of on my own time doing the homework and putting in that effort. Um, And, you know, you you, you can't take rejection personally. That was one of the biggest lessons from that job. I mean, because doing what I did there, you heard no probably 80 times for every one time you heard a maybe forget about a yes, (laughs) (laughs) but you you can't take it personally. And some days were easier than others. That's for sure.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah. That's probably, Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
0: I say, but it, that, that was without a question the, the best, like kind of just life lesson, and the, the one thing I've taken with me is it, it's business, or sometimes it's not even business. It's just not realistic and not going to happen. So don't take that no personally. It's not a slight against you.
1: Yeah, it sounds like it was like a one of those like kind of perfect jobs for someone right out of right out of college, kind of yeah. ready to get to work, and
0: definitely for the right person. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I remember to this day every single other person in that same kind of bullpen, if you will, in these cubes doing the job. and I, I just don't understand how some people squandered the opportunity. You know, they're just messing around or they're, you know, taking two and a half hour lunches or just walking around the <laughs> arena because they had the opportunity. So, which, yeah, that was cool. And I did that as well, but that meant I was in at seven 30 in the morning to do that, not from 11 to one or, you know, three to five when I'm trying to be, be making sales. Um, so yeah, if you have the right mindset and just energy and, Never say die attitude. Yeah, I mean, that that was a great position. You had to be hungry, that's for sure, because of the competitive nature of it.
1: Yeah. And so how did your role change as you, you got got promoted and moved up the ranks there?
0: Um, so that obviously was very heavy, um, just kind of cold calling, intro sales type role. And then after, I think I was there for seven or eight months or so doing that. Um, a lot of people that were around me had moved on taking jobs at other teams cause they saw their tenure coming to end. So i just left. Um, and I actually, a position came available in the same department as an account executive. Um, okay. so that's more managing. I think at that time it was $20 million of Nick's business and like 10 million of Rangers and that's existing season ticket holders. So servicing okay. their account, um, getting them to renew every year, even though the teams are t- terrible, (laughs) trying to upsell them. So if they have two tickets, couldn't you use four or upgrade into more expensive products, sell them individual suites to games or to other events going on at the garden, but then also still having a new sales goal. So it was a bit of a service and a sales role, um, Mm -hmm. which I really liked because it wasn't the monotony of ringing, 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 no, no, no. It was actually talking with existing clients. And even though it wasn't always the best conversation because the Knicks started off 11 and 40, um, at least they were passionate about <laughs> basketball and, you know, you know, you, these people, you'd get them on the phone and get to chat about things. So I did that for a while and then I moved to a senior account executive and then um, I'd always made it very clear to them that, you know, marketing was my interest and creative like ad campaigns and that type of stuff. And Actually, the gentleman I referenced earlier, Hunter Lockman, he was kind of moving up in his career as I was in mine, and he was in the Knicks marketing department. So they would start to pull me into those meetings. So I, I had the opportunity to do really fun, cool kind of creative stuff in addition to just sales and service, which is more what I wanted to do in my career. So that was cool that I had that opportunity.
1: Right. What, what surprised you the most about working in that industry? <laughs> Probably how
0: unglamorous it is (laughs) you know working at Madison Square Garden the mecca of sports um, sounds glamorous but it is grunt work Um, you don't make much money unless you have exceed your sales targets and make great commission Um, honestly you don't get paid well because it is so competitive and if you're not willing to do it for this money you know they'll find someone younger and hungrier to do it for less Um, right and and, I mean the hours you know on game nights you're there till 10 30 11 p.m and most of the time, you're still. I was still there at 7:30, 38 a.m. Um, so those are long days, and you're not at every single home game. But there's 44 Knicks home games, 44 Rangers home games. I mean, that, that's that's a significant part of your calendar that you're working crazy hours. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it's a lot of work and just it's cutthroat. Um, and I mean, maybe that shouldn't have surprised me. Maybe I was young and naive. But I mean, everyone, for the most part, was out for their best interest. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I came up under. My manager, Bob Gallo, who, um, I, he was not like that at all. He, he was certainly my first mentor and just an unbelievable example. he set for how to work, how to go about your business, how to succeed in this crazy competitive world. Um, and I think, I think I learned a lot from him. I don't think I could ever quantify it or put it into words, but just watching the way he carried himself and went about his day, I look back now and see that the way I carry myself and run my business a lot I see a lot of him in the way I do things which which is unbelievable and if nothing else taking that from there I mean that's invaluable
1: yeah 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 that's great and so why did you ultimately end up leaving
0: um it was tough it was it was actually a bittersweet end um in 2008 there was an overhaul after the Isaiah Thomas era and they brought in a new president. Um, so The team had the same owners, ownership didn't change, but they brought in a new president of Madison Square Garden. He came over from the NBA league office. And he, he was interesting. He was actually a really good guy, motivational, inspirational, very involved. Um, but at that point, myself, I think I'd gotten like three promotions in five years. I, I'd, I'd had three or four different titles, continuing to gain steam within the organization. And it was great because Bob Gallo, my mentor, he was definitely moving up that ladder. And it was great because I was like one run below him. So I could see where my future career was going or where I thought it was going. And it was in the direction I wanted to, I was happy. But um, when the new president Scott came in, rather than coming in and evaluating what he had and then making some tough decisions, he brought his whole cast of characters in with him. Um, And that, that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. So I felt like we had an art department an incredible team, especially at the higher level. Um, but he just brought in two brand new people and just wedged them right above us below him, mm-hmm. totally stunting my career path. And I thought I didn't get a fair shot to prove myself before being kind of passed over, if you will. Right. Um, and the biggest problem beyond that was that the two people that he kind of brought in and wedged above us, not only did they stunt my growth, but I just didn't like them the way they did business, the culture they created. I, I, I thought they were clowns. So I won't name names. And, and a lot of people in the department thought the same thing. And so even though it was kind of competitive and I, I wasn't confident it was the right decision, I knew it was time to go. Um, you know, if, if you're not happy in whatever situation you're in, whether it's career, whether it's life, whether it's relationship, do something about it. Um, life is way too short to sit there and be unhappy. Um, and if I stayed and built up this resentment, it, it could have ended uglier. So- um, I started floating resumes and applying for other opportunities at other teams. I got a couple offers from other organizations um, throughout like a year or so. And then it was just a stroke of luck or fortuitous timing maybe. Um, but my father, who had the family business, it was, it was really well established at this point. But his vice president, um, he had moved over from South Africa, lived in our home. He would came up through the ranks and he'd been with my dad for about nine years. And um, he left overnight and started a competing company and took two of the Jeez. biggest clients from my father. And this was at a time when I was getting really fed up at MSG and my dad would probably take me out to a nice steak dinner and some good bottles of wine every six months or so. Um, All right, come on. You ready to come take over the business yet? You ready to come <laughs> learn the business yet? And was always no dad, no, I don't care how much good wine you get. You're not going to be drunk enough to quit MSG. Um, <laughs> but this time just, it was, it was the perfect temperature in the air, um, both of what was going on at his company KAI, where I am now, um, him needing someone to step in and kind of assume a big role because he'd just gotten kind of screwed over and was like, oh my God, deer in headlights, what do I do? And me just being so unhappy. So we sat down, discussed a lot. Um, I actually took some time off because I had accumulated a lot of vacation time, went with him to a travel conference, a big conference, just to kind of see the lay of the land, meet some people. And then we, we decided, let's do it. So I told him I would leave MSG, um, I would give him a year and then I would probably leave and go back to sports, but I'd give him a year to learn the business and kind of help him write the ship, if you will. Um, and that was 10 years ago. So clearly <laughs> he got more than a year out of me after that conversation. Right. So that was a very long winded answer, but it was, it was a lot yeah, yeah. of circumstances that led to me both leaving the garden and also joining the family business after all that time.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And going quickly, going back to the, the two guys that um, were kind of wedged above you at MSG. Like, how how so did they, like, change the culture in a negative way? And, like, how were they, like, clowns?
0: <laughs> um, like, we, we were so goal-oriented and, like, target-driven um, mm. prior to that. And I kind of thrived in that competitive environment. And I grew up playing sports. I was the captain of most of the teams I was on. And, and I mean, that you're working in sports. That should be the environment. And sure. I, I, they came in and it became almost like, a comic book i mean th- they made purple the color of sales at msg i don't understand it they, they read way too many marketing books that maybe applied to other businesses and mm-hmm. other industries but to me it didn't fit in sports so like we had like a team outing and they gave everyone a pair of purple converses they get to aware to the office every friday because purple was our team color for sales and it's just like are you kidding we had a purple <laughs> water buffalo who was the mascot of the entire msg sports division and, and the other thing that I thought was funny on um, actually Scott's first um, first day full-time running MSG Sports, he showed us an incredible video of a safari in South Africa. And mind you, I'd grown up my whole life going to South Africa, um, but it was a cool story of it's lions hunting a buffalo and they get this little baby buffalo, they're by a water hole, a crocodile comes out, grabs the buffalo, they're almost playing a tug of war with the buffalo, and then this whole herd of 200 buffalo come running in chase the lions off, hit the, hit the uh, crocodile off it, and the baby buffalo runs away. And it's like an eight minute video. I'd seen it before, it's spectacular. It's called the Battle at Kruger, YouTube it, it's unbelievable, um, anyone into wildlife and safaris. So this was the, sh- the first video he showed us. And he goes, so there's three types of people in the world. There's the lions, the crocodiles, and the buffalo, and what they all mean. So we need to be water buffaloes. We need to stick together and be a water buffalo. And I'm sitting there, there are no water buffaloes in Africa. Those reside in Asia. That's a Cape buffalo. So from day one, he's sitting on a throne of lies. <laughs> um, but no, so this whole, that was the rah-rah, you know, be, be a water buffalo and like your facts are wrong. And then it became a purple water buffalo. And it, it just grew into this just funny, like lovey-dovey culture, which is yeah, yeah. not a bad thing, but I don't know that wasn't the way it was before. And, and everyone that was there felt like it was working.
1: Yeah, yeah, it just wasn't the way that you wanted, it. you wanted it to work.
0: Yeah, exactly. And as I said, I mean, if you're not happy with the situation, do something about it. And I wasn't in a position to change it. So I right. you was know, for other opportunities.
1: Yeah. And so now getting into um, KAI now, um, maybe just provide a quick overview of the business for people listening.
0: Um, sure. So KAI is a marketing representation firm. Um, so we represent the interests of other parties. All of our clients are based in long haul kind of exotic destinations. So our portfolio of clients include suppliers in Asia, Africa, Middle East, and South America. And those can be hotels, tour companies, safari lodges, resorts, luxury trains. And then my company serves as their kind of sales representative in the North American market. So we go out and do the sales calls and kind of find business for them from the travel trade based here. So if you want to take a safari to South Africa, you're probably going to call a safari expert, whatever travel company or a travel agency. I'm in the ear of that travel agency, explaining to them that when Joe Blow calls to go on safari, you better send them to this lodge instead of the other 30 lodges in the same area. So we're doing B2B sales and looking after the best interest of our international clients. Um, because, you know, like a company like a Marriott or a Hilton, they would never hire a firm like mine because they have a huge sales force on the ground here doing that. We're working with these small luxury boutique properties, mom and pop operations. They don't have the budget to pay someone $50,000, $100,000 a year to go around and do sales calls. Mm-hmm. So they hire us to be their representative and their sales guy here, knowing that we're also doing this for other companies. Um, but because we have such a good diverse portfolio, we work with all of the top travel companies and tour operators here in the States and in Canada. And so we're able to get in those doors, open up doors, and have meetings, set up calls for them because of our relationship with them. Whereas if they're sitting in Vietnam and just start calling these travel companies, they're not gonna take that call. They don't know them from a hole in the wall. But because we are working with them, that gives them an instant stamp of reliability and almost a stamp of, okay, these guys have been vetted. They're part of the KI portfolio. We need to at least look at working with them. Um, So we're, we're, we're B2B sales. Um, and we look after the interests of international travel providers. Um, okay. Anyone, anyone that knows me, I often refer to us as a glorified middleman. The only issue is we're not that glorified. So I don't know if that's <laughs> the best description. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're very much a middleman B2B sales, if you will.
1: Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. Can
0: I provide any further clarification? Cause I know it's an odd thing if you're not in the industry. Yeah, no. Yeah.
1: And I, I was, I was going to ask like what the services were and how your business model works. Cause it was, it was um, I couldn't get a clear picture of it from, from the website, but that definitely, sure. that definitely, definitely helped. You're, you're kind of acting as this kind of like outsourced sales and, and marketing organization for these smaller, like destination yep. um, tour operators in uh, you know, Asia and Africa.
0: Very much so. So, you know, mm-hmm. we, we, and we have, we have different, I'd say menu of services, but different kind of responsibilities or agreements with different. Properties or hotels or groups Um, like for instance, one of our great clients is the Leela Palaces and Hotels It was just ranked the top hotel chain in the entire world by travel and leisure Um, they have eight luxury hotels in India and um, Three of them are just absurdly extravagant beautiful palace properties that are hotels So for them, you know, we are going around and visiting going doing sales calls sales training presentations the top travel agencies that are catering to these high-end luxury travelers and again, just giving them the selling points, why you book ours instead of the other three incredible hotels in the same city. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also, as you can imagine, tons of travel conferences. I mean, none right now, unfortunately, because of the COVID situation. But yeah, so we, we attend a lot of those conferences on behalf of them that are here in Las Vegas okay. or in Seattle or in Toronto. So that way they don't have to send two representatives on a you know 12 hour flight spend all this money to get here, then the exhibiting, then the hotel. It's like, Hey, we're local. We'll go on your behalf and fly your flag. Um, Mm -hmm. we do help with social media a bit. If they want, we can help them with their account, build their brand presence, marketing materials. Um, but the biggest part of it without a question is the sales solicitation. um, and just making sure their brand is front and center within the North American travel trade. Okay. Got it.
1: And so what inspired your dad to, to start the business?
0: Um, so his story of transitioning from his career previously to this one is actually better than mine. (laughs) I like mine, but um, he worked in the airline industry for many years, and his last post was with South African Airways. Um, he worked there from 82, the year I was born, till 95. Um, that's why I grew up going to South Africa so much, and Africa is so near and dear to my heart, and kind of I, I have such experience there, and South Africa. Um, for your younger listeners, they probably don't recall, but went through a crazy period called apartheid. Um, and mm-hmm. there was a lot of civil unrest and a lot of changes going on within the country. And in 94, um, Nelson Mandela was released from prison. Apartheid was abolished and there was crazy things going on. Um, SAA is a government owned airline. And part of the bylaws are number one is South African has to run the airline. My dad is not South African. Um, he was born in Germany, but he's never lived in South Africa even. So he was at the point where he couldn't get promoted anymore and he was only 40 or so. And more importantly, you couldn't get anything done because being a government-owned airline, there's so much red tape, so much craziness going on. And then with the fall of apartheid, it was just a chaotic time to be working for a government-owned company in South Africa. So he was at a meeting in South Africa and there was a big disagreement that he didn't like. And he said, forget it, I quit and walked out of the boardroom. And this this was going on during... Um, one of the biggest travel conferences in Africa travel. It used to be the biggest. Now it's up there with one or two others. Um, It's called Ndaba. It's every year in in, uh, Durban. It's an incredible show. And this is during that conference. And he was like one of Mr., Mr. SAA for everyone there. Everyone there sells Africa. So they all knew him. And so word got around quick that he just literally walked out of meeting and quit. So he was actually approached by two or three people in the industry saying, hey, Henry, you know all the major players in the US market from selling the airline. I have a small safari lodge, or I have a luxury product. Now that apartheid's done, the travel sanctions are going to be lifted. So American leisure travelers can visit South Africa. Why don't you go sell my product to them? Um, So within like a month, he had started a new business with three clients, um, all in South Africa, because that's where his relationships lied, um, because of his tenure with South African Airways. So it was a very much accidental, like it wasn't a planned move. It was he was fed up with his situation and he did something about it. So maybe that's where I got it from. I just put that together. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you're not happy somewhere, do something about it. And he really yeah. did in a big way. Um, so, you know, I remember, like I said, that was when I was 13 years old. So he was always with that same my entire life until then. Um, and and it, it was interesting to watch, you know, my mom and he started the business together. I always say my dad, um, but it was him and my mom equal parts. Um, they both put their blood, sweat and tears into building, the business starting from the ground up. And it's cool. I mean, they started with, like I said, three clients all in South Africa. Two of them are still clients today, 25 years later, which is awesome. Cool. Um, yeah. And now, now we have clients in 35 countries. We have a portfolio of 20 clients. It's, it's, um, it's, it's a cool story of growth and, you know, kind of meager beginnings, if you will, to being one of the market leaders in what we do. I mean, he almost created the industry, like being a rep- representative for Africa and African companies that didn't exist at that time. There were some European hotel groups maybe that did or some other places, um, maybe Hong Kong or Southeast Asia, but Africa, no. And now I'd say there's a, a dozen at least that are kind of Africa-focused marketing reps. Um, mm-hmm. And it's cool to look back and think, you know, my father was kind of the pioneer of that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's really cool. And so is the folk the reason for the focus on long-haul destinations because of this connection within with Within Africa and South Africa?
0: Yeah, without a question. Um, as I said, it started with just South Africa. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just kind of over time as he built his brand and kind of reputation and people understood the concept of what he was doing in the market, um, he looked at other opportunities. He added um, East Africa, so Kenya, Tanzania, Uganda, Rwanda to the portfolio. We kind of brought in the range of the types of clients we were representing as well. And then... After about 10 years of solely Africa focus, maybe eight years, he decided you should never put all your eggs in one basket, especially when that basket is Africa, which can be a bit volatile. Um, So then we expanded and added some clientele in Asia, in India. Um, And the thoughts behind that was, if we're dealing with these luxury tour operators and travel agents that can sell a $20,000 safari why can't they sell a $20,000 trip to Vietnam or China or India? Um, it's the same type of clientele, the long haul, the people that are going to be willing and able to get on a 15 hour flight, have the vacation time as well as uh, the resources financially to do so. Um, and then just recently, since I got involved one of my big agenda items was we expanded into South America. Cause again, I, I applied that same kind of concept and thinking in south america we identified as an emerging market a growth market so we picked up some clients there um but i think yeah now yeah i'll safely say we will never kind of change that we are always going to focus on the long haul and the exotics um the reason being we're experts in it people in the industry know if i have questions about something i don't know that's far away i like to tell people if it's more than 12 hours on a plane We probably have a client there and we probably know a lot more about it than most. Um, Mm. Whereas there's tons of people in the industry that know way more than I do or anyone in my company do about Europe, about the Caribbean, about Mexico. So who am I to go in their office and tell them how to do their job or how to be better at their job when they already know more than me from, from the starting point. And rather than kind of expend the time, resources and effort to become an expert on those and broaden our scope of work, I'd rather remain the expert in the tough stuff and be the go-to for
1: that.
0: Um, so yeah, that, that's why the focus has always been on long haul. It's been very organic growth, but yeah. kind of targeted growth.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, that, that makes sense. And so I guess in, in non-COVID times, what what does your day-to-day job look like?
0: Um, I don't know. I mean, one of the reasons I love it is there is no like daily routine or typical day. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, before COVID, I'd say I travel about 50% of the time. So I'm in the office about 50% of the time. The other 50% I'm on the road. Um, on the road, we'll be traveling internationally to meet with our clients. It will be attending trade shows, um, seeing new properties, going to do some consulting for new operations overseas. Um, and then the other part of the travel is domestic travel, or I count Canada in that because we look after North America. And that's going to all of the travel companies across the continent. And again, doing these kind of meetings. So either a soliciting them for business or more often than not doing trainings for their sales staff, Um, because even the travel agents that are experts in selling Africa, a lot of them maybe have been there once or, you know, they've done their homework, but you know, they're not on the ground like we are. So me and my team are constantly going to these places and providing updates, making them um, more educated and able to direct their clients in the appropriate manner. So we're kind of a resource. So um, it's funny. You can, tie it back almost to, as I said, the first thing I thought I wanted to do was be a teacher. Um, And and a lot of what I do is an educator. Uh, I consider myself an educator as much as I do a salesperson or a marketer. Um, Because even if there's a company that we work with in, say, South America, and now they want to build product to Asia, I'm helping them build it from the ground up. So I am doing educating, explaining how to sell it, what works, how many nights you need if you want to do Thailand versus how many nights you need if you want to do Vietnam and Cambodia combo. What flight connections are possible? How long is the flight time? What kind of budget do you need? So these are all right. things that people take for granted. But if you're selling travel as a travel agent, you need to know these things, you know, when you're on the phone with a potential client. So I'm kind of the person providing that information to them in many cases.
1: Yeah, that, that's, that's really cool. It's, and it's funny how it kind of comes, comes full circle.
0: Yeah, and I'm I'm actually just putting a lot of these things together <laughs> as we're chatting, which is pretty funny. Yeah, uh, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, um, it happens
1: a lot with a podcast.
0: No, <laughs> yeah, it's good. Good stuff. Way to bring it out of us. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, but it's fun. I mean, I I love getting in front of a room of fifteen, twenty, thirty, a hundred people, whatever it is, and you know, doing a a presentation, whether it's on a, a country, whether it's on a travel trend, whether it's on an actual hotel or product. Because um, the other thing too is with travel i feel like you're always learning um you never know it all because things are always changing so even if you're an expert in mozambique go back in six months and tell me it's not different in some way a new hotel's open a new restaurant's open there's a new flight that wasn't last time you're there so you're constantly evolving and learning and most people that work in travel love that part of it and they want to learn they want to continue to get educated so it's not like doing a presentation and pulling up an Excel sheet and half the audience is sleeping or talking about insurance. I know knock on selling insurance, but it's exciting. <laughs> and, and, and you know, it's something that everyone in the room is 99% of the time passionate about and wants to be there and wants to learn about. Um, it, it's more than just a job, it's, 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 it's fun to learn and then to share that knowledge um, and use it as a sales
1: tool. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's awesome. So, so talk to me about the KAI Foundation and the work that you've done with that so far.
0: Um, sure, that, that's that's actually exciting stuff. I, I love working on that. And um, I do spend quite a bit of time. So I started a KAI in 2010. And something my father and I talked about when we had that initial conversation about me coming over was starting a nonprofit or charitable arm um, somewhere down the road. And in 2015, um, I became president of the company and my dad became chairman and took on more of an advisory role, not in day-to-day operations. So in 16, we founded the KI Foundation. And um, the reasoning behind that timing was he had time to kind of put towards it now that I was running the day-to-day, he could oversee the foundation. Mm. Um, And pretty much the concept is giving back to the communities that have given us so much over the years. So we're going into the communities where we have clients and we've promoted these communities, but only on the kind of hospitality and luxury travel side, um, but not always looking after the people that live there or where did the staff come from for the people at the Safari Lodge concept. Um, And we do focus exclusively on health and education. Um, We feel like if any society or community wants to try to get ahead and improve itself, these are the two core things that they need. Um, So our first project was in 2016. We actually built a maternity ward in a small village called Mugarameno, which is in Zambia. It's about... It's about 45 minutes by boat from one of our five star luxury safari clients that we love. It's my father's personal favorite um, for a number of reasons. Um, so we decided we identified that as a place to get back to because this village, Muguromeno, it had a small health facility. It was like one room, maybe two. There was no running water and no electricity. And that catered to over 8,000 people from all the surrounding villages, including the entire staff of the lodge that we represent and have known for years. So whether you had malaria, or you were giving birth, you were going to the same facility with no running water. And I mean, that was just appalling to us. And we visited, we did like a village tour, met with the chief and all that. And we decided that would be the perfect place for our first project, because it met with kind of the standards um, and the overall goal of our foundation. And also, we had such a good and trusting relationship with the owners of the Safari Lodge 25 minutes away. So they could oversee all the work, the construction, make sure money wasn't getting squandered or going to the wrong places, which happens quite a bit when you're dealing in third world countries and mm-hmm. sending over large sums of money. Um, right. So that was cool. We, we opened that maternity ward. Um, we have a nurse there now delivering babies. We've delivered over 200 happy and healthy babies since the opening, which is amazing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Since then, we've now built a second building, which is a residence for a doctor. Um, To help out the nurse because the demand is so high and another organization not affiliated with the Canada Foundation is putting up a general hospital right next door. So with running water, electricity, all the same facilities, but for just general care. Um, And then we've done some short term projects um, and those those are definitely a passion of mine. Um, Due to the lack of tourism dollars coming in um, based on COVID poaching has gone up in Africa. Um, It's a major issue and I'm a huge animal lover and obviously wildlife lover and safari goer so One of the coolest experiences in my life was actually going gorilla trekking in Uganda. And just, this was a couple months ago, three months ago um, they lost one of their big silverback gorillas to a poacher because the anti-poaching forces are at 50% capacity because there's no tourism dollars coming in, which then fund the anti-poaching efforts. So just as a quick side fix, we put together a quick fundraiser. We raffled off some prizes. And you know, we raised $8,000 um, just to sense its anti-poaching effort. And you know, that doesn't sound like a huge sum of money, but it only costs about $20 a day um, to have an anti-poaching ranger out there doing their job. So that's gonna go a long way in feeding them, getting them with the equipment they need and getting them back out there patrolling at their normal levels. So hopefully no more wildlife has to senselessly, senselessly lose its life. Um, and then the other project that we've identified and we were actually set to start work on, but due to COVID it's been delayed, is we are going to build a school in Cambodia, um, outside of the city of Siem Reap. Um, you know, Africa is where we got to start. So we felt that that was great to do that first project there. But we do a ton of work in Asia now, and we don't want to only be Africa-centric. So we, we found, um, I visited with a local community and um, the headmaster of a school just about a year ago when I was in Cambodia with my wife. And we decided that would be the perfect place for the next project. So as soon as we get the all clear to have people start work, we have the funds and we're going to construct a nice school for them. Um, complete with water filtration, proper bathrooms, a library and all that. So um, so again, focus on health and education and we'll continue to do these projects anywhere and everywhere we have clients and we see a need.
1: That's awesome. That's really cool. So when was when was the like, uh-oh moment for you when you realized COVID was going to have like a really serious impact on your business?
0: Um, I mean, that's like a nine tier answer because no one saw... The impact that it would have to the degree that we've seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew we were going to feel it back in January because, um, as I said, we do a lot of business in Asia. And I mean, right. the first cases in China were in December. So we started to hear about it and see it. And we pretty much by January were saying, okay, China's done for a year. So we need to start telling people to focus on other parts of Asia. And then by February, it became apparent all of Asia is now going to have this kind of cloud over its head because it was starting to spread locally. Right. Um, we knew it was going to. Have an impact on everyone because when there was something major like this, you see a total decrease in travel. Um, you know, after 9 11, I wasn't in the business, but my dad had his company and saw the impact of it um, during the great um, economic uh, recession we had in 08. That was a huge deal. Um, this obviously is far more crippling, but it's so unprecedented. And that word has been thrown around so much and overused. I can't believe I just said it because I hate it. But um, <laughs> seeing countries literally close borders and not allow tourism. I mean, sure, that happens in pockets. If there's a terrorist attack in Kenya and Mombasa, you're going to see a huge decline for two years in East Africa as a whole. But, you know, we can divert people to go to Southern Africa, go to South America, whatever it might be, um, where you have every single country and continent in the world close their borders. I mean, no one would see this coming. When, when I knew it was going to be real bad, I mean, I can remember the day in where I was sitting was March 11th. Um, I was sitting at my local bar, my, my local watering hole with my wife, We're sitting there watching basketball, and all of a sudden, Trump comes on the TV and announces the travel ban to Europe. And then about five minutes later, the NBA game stops, and they announced that they're suspending (laughs) all NBA games. And that's when I'm like, oh, wow. I mean, a travel ban to Europe is nuts. Shutting down the NBA is nuts. And that was on the 11th, and I remember the day, because on the 12th, my wife and I flew to Australia um, to celebrate our one-year anniversary. (laughs) So we we made the decision. We said, hey, we're going to go forget it. We're, we're going, we've been waiting for this. And um, it, we'd rather get stuck there. There was no cases really in Australia yet. We're like, let's go. And then we'll come back and deal with it type thing. And even while we were in the air, cause that's, you know, 30 something hours to get there from New York with the three flights. Right. So much had changed in the world and the travel industry had changed. Um, so we, she, she works in the travel industry as well. So we both ended up working a bunch on holiday and had to cut it short. Um, it supposed to be a two week trip. We got six days exactly as planned, which was awesome, um, but getting more nervous about the situation and putting out travel warnings, and if you don't come home, be prepared to stay international indefinitely. Once we heard that, <laughs> I said, all right, let's change our flight, and we had a reroute, and, and we ended up getting home on the 22nd of March, um, but it was while we were in Tasmania on that holiday. It was the 11th that I had that moment, and then on the 16th, I actually reached out to all of my clients, no matter what part of the world they were in. And said, brace yourself and kind of um, made concessions and gave them reduced fees because we knew their impact, even if it didn't spread more than just Asia and Europe, just because of the psyche of the Americans traveling internationally would change. And we knew right. it would get there eventually. And it was funny because the response from a lot of our African clients were like, okay, crazy person. Like Africa has not had a case yet. We have great outdoor spaces. This is where everyone's going to come like you just wait and yeah a month later it's like thank you so much you know for giving us heads up and obviously um slashing your fees helping us kind of create some reserves to make our business continue to to move um but then you know another uh uh-oh moment was another month later when it's like oh wait no we're still not out of lockdown yet (laughs) like yeah so it's, it's 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 continuing to evolve um the other most overused word. My wife and I made a drinking game out of It's fluid. It is a fluid situation. You hear that so much. We take a sip of our wine every time you hear it. But um, so no, there there have been like nine uh oh moments. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah. yeah, I think the 11th of March with the European travel ban and and the NBA shutting down, I was like, wow, yeah, this is gonna really impact us really negatively and take a long time to recover from.
1: Yeah, yeah, I remember that day, March 11th, too, as kind of that. Um, kind of that whoa <laughs> whoa moment for me yeah. is what I, what I would call it was when
0: yeah whoa um, moment I think they
1: had like an NBA I think they had like an NBA game going and they told the fans to to leave dude that's that's yeah, what yeah. we were
0: watching it's crazy
1: yeah it, that's what I was it like, was like
0: is... I, it, it was it was the Mavericks cuz Mark Cuban's sitting on the sideline he's on his phone and you see mm-hmm. him go nuts and he actually pulled the ref over he's <laughs> like no, I just got to notice the NBA has suspended all play and they're out in the court playing and then yeah they made the announcement. The fans had to leave. They stopped after two and a half quarters or whatever it was. Uh, it's amazing.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. To think,
0: to think about that March 10th, what a different world we lived in just a few months ago.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, so is is business basically at a halt then, like for the foreseeable future?
0: Um, yes and no. I mean, obviously, you, you can't travel for the most part to the areas and the destinations that we um, represent and in, in which we operate. So, actual people traveling, very much so to halt. Um, East Africa, fortunately, has reopened for the most part. Tanzania opened a few weeks back. Um, August 1st, Kenya opened their borders. Um, Rwanda's open. So, East Africa is the first region where we have clients that Americans are traveling to again. Um, I mean, the volumes, as you would imagine, are nowhere near what would be normal circumstances. And right. I mean, as long as stuff goes smoothly and more and more flights get... Um, start flying. I mean, we'll, we'll see that slowly return to normal volumes, but it'll take time. So even, even if that was closed though, you can never come to a total standstill. So we're still talking with all of our key partners, both internationally and domestic and just seeing how they're doing, seeing how we can help, how we can offer support. Um, the great thing was at the beginning of this whole thing for the first two months, a lot of the travel agencies and tour operators saw this as a great opportunity with the downtime of people not traveling to, kind of grow their, their knowledge base and their education. So they were right. as open as ever to getting on these Zooms and go to meetings. And um, as I said, I mean, I love nothing more than presenting stuff I'm passionate about and teaching people. So even if it wasn't in person, you're getting great turnouts and educating them on what it's like to go to Brazil or, you know, teaching them the difference between Machu Picchu and the Galapagos Islands and how to combine them. So doing kind of what I loved just virtually. So we were probably hosting more of those than ever before. And then after two months, you know, you hit that wall where everyone got Zoom fatigue and webinar would out. So <laughs> we rebuilt our website, launched a new website. Um, we commissioned and actually executed our own consumer survey where we ran a survey to the actual consumer, the end user, just to get a grasp of what they felt about travel, when they would be pre- prepared to travel, different regions of the world. And I put together a comprehensive report and shared that for free with all of our clients, but also the entire travel trade in in America and Canada. And so, you know, we found creative ways to stay engaged with with the community of travel trade and also provide valuable assets to them and information to them. So even though travel may be at a halt, we're still doing what we can as best we can behind the scenes um, to add value to everyone with whom we work yeah again again that unglorified middleman part <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> yeah, yeah right and so i guess on a more personal level like as someone whose entire life has been so closely linked with travel and traveling how have you been coping with and you know moving forward in this whole pandemic experience so far
0: um it, it's tough i mean yeah as i said I, i'm used to traveling 50 percent of the time and i mean if i was not if i went 10 days without being on a plane that was like a lot so that it's, it's it's been tough um it was interesting that you know as i said my wife and i were in australia cut it short so we flew home we took the long flight home through dubai got home and then i started growing my beard out actually and i told her i'm not shaving my beard until we can get on a plane again and after three months of that that got old real quick and she put an end to that um so you know we, we never thought it was going to be this long but we we found ways to keep busy um you know we've we've done weekend trips up to like the finger lakes which we'd never done before in upstate new york which is stunning and at that time the restaurants were still closed the wineries were closed but just going out and doing hikes and exploring kind of your own backyard um we were meant to be in kenya to celebrate her birthday and obviously had to cancel that so we rented a car and drove up to maine and we spent a week in maine and it was spectacular and i -hmm. i never thought i'd go to maine this year um so that was cool and it was a way to get out keep sane. um right now as i speak to you i'm in fire island (laughs) an awesome beach community and just off the coast of long island where i grew up and i grew up coming here and so we still came out here for a week just to work remotely and kind of enjoy something that's not the inside of our apartment um and then the month of october we're going to be going to barbados for the month and working remotely from there so we're still finding ways to kind of travel and scratch that itch um but Mm -hmm. no it's it's been a struggle um it's definitely not been easy
1: yeah and looking at the the bigger picture, uh, how do you see like the tra- like the travel industry as a whole evolving and changing, you know, out of this? And where does your business fit into that story?
0: That's a tough one. I mean, anyone who gives you a straight answer, there, um, <laughs> they're, they're guessing. And I've, mm-hmm. I've been telling people, if, if you're trying to predict the future of the industry, I mean, that, that that's like throwing darts blindfolded. Um, there is no crystal ball for this. I mean, I think some of the things you'll, you will see just in general terms is smaller group sizes. You know, there, there's a lot of tour operators that do preset groups where, you know, you get in the motor coach or the bus and it's, you're traveling with 24 other people, 40 other people. I, I don't know that that's going to be a thing again. Um, and if it is, it's not going to be for a while. Group sizes will be much smaller. Um, I do think you'll see a significant decrease in business travel. Um, Cause people have realized that you don't have to get on a plane and spend all this money to go see clients effectively I mean, it will come back, but to the levels of pre-COVID, no way. Um, mm-hmm. That won't personally impact me too much because we do focus exclusively on leisure. But as the industry as a whole, that will impact a lot of our business partners who do rely on business travel. So it'll be interesting to see that. Um, I think there will be further consolidation um, as well as the disappearance of some companies, both domestic and abroad. Um, you're going to see some of the larger companies um, buy up smaller ones and continue to grow. And you'll see some of the bigger companies actually just Have too much overhead and operating costs and no business coming in and they'll have to close their doors. So it's going to be interesting to take a look back, you know, 12, 18 months from now, it'll be unprecedented case study to look back and see who (laughs) survived, how and why. Um, Yeah, you know, we're fortunate that our is relatively small lean. Um, we, we don't spend frivolously. We have a good reserve. Um, our clients are all really well established. I don't think any of them are at jeopardy of going out of business. Fortunately, Mm -hmm. So I'm 99% confident we're going to survive this and we'll, we'll innovate. Um, it is a moving target, so we'll move with it. I still see us fitting in by being that kind of connector of people. So maybe that might change slightly, but at the end of the day, I mean, most industries, but travel more so than others are built on relationships and we excel at creating and bridging these relationships. Um, cause we have the relationships with all of the domestic trade as well as these international providers. And as long as we have that, I mean, that, that, that's value. Um, and we'll find ways to continue to connect people. And at the end of the day, I'd, I just want to enable more people to see more of the world. And I don't care what the marketplace looks like, I'll find a way to do that.
1: Yeah. And so what's your ultimate vision for KAI and the business?
0: Um, that That's an interesting one. Um, As I said earlier, I I do see us always focusing on the exotic, the long haul markets, um, those international destinations and promoting them. The way in which we do that, or the scale of our portfolio could potentially change based on what's happening right now. But no, we're gonna remain doing the same thing we are in terms of educating, connecting, and promoting international travel. and, And like I said, just making sure more people, it's more accessible to more people. Um, and, and maybe that's silly because that seems so unrealistic right now, and it will take time to bounce back, but the travel industry is a resilient one because the longer people have to stay at home and can't leave, the more pent-up demand there will be, so when it comes mm-hmm. back, it, it won't come back in the volumes that it did. It will be smaller numbers of people going, but there's going to be that core group of people that are dying to get on a plane and go either as far away as they can or to the most remote place or get out in the wilderness and do a safari or go to japan because maybe this is going to happen again or some other world or life event will happen and they will they don't want to die saying they never went to japan um so there will always be that demand to travel to explore to wander it's just stronger inside of some people than others
1: Mm -hmm. and i want to kind of i want to go back a little bit here um and talk about the organization that you started called young travel professionals
0: yeah sure Um,
1: um it's
0: it was again a very organic thing um entering the travel industry with no real contacts in travel other than, you know, my parents Um, at, and in 2010 um, at the ripe young age of 28, I quickly realized that the average age of most travel agents was in the 50s, maybe 60 range. And a lot Mm -hmm. of people, I mean, if, if they're listening to this and they hear travel agent, they probably picture an old lady at her desk with the glasses. And, um, (laughs) but that wasn't the case. Uh, There's so many people working in hotels in kind of new up and coming travel concierge type services that were in their twenties or even early thirties or people that were young and would have loved to work in travel, but thought of it as an old person's game or didn't know how to get in. And there was more and more people that fit into that bucket and, I just wanted to find a way to get everyone together. Um, You know, when I was at Madison Square Garden, I was the unofficial Friday happy hour planner. Every single Friday, I set up a happy hour somewhere and we'd get dozens of people to come and it was a great fun event. So Mm -hmm. I kind of took that and applied it to this new industry and a way to kind of bring like-minded people together from all different segments of the industry. And as I said, some people that weren't even in the industry, but were just of interest there. So I kind of started chatting um, with one of a guy who actually ended up working for me, who no longer does, but is a good friend. We were on a work trip in South Africa, together in a pool, having a beer. And we started talking about it. He said, Hey, when you go to events, do you realize that you are the only person under 30? And I'm like, yep. He goes, let's do something about that. And that was kind of where the idea was born. And when we got home, we looped in another four people of the similar age and mindset. We got together and started this thing we called YTP or Young Travel Professionals. And we started off, we said, we're going to do a networking event in New York city where we were all based and we thought we'd get 30, 40 people. We had over 110 and we said, holy cow, there is a demand for this. Mm -hmm. So then about a year later, one of the founders, part of that group moved out to San Francisco for a job opportunity. So we said, Hey, once you're settled, why don't you apply that same concept there? He did. And his numbers started to get to the same as New York. So then again, through that organic growth and then other relationships we had in other cities of like-minded, similar age people. We started chapters in, I think at the height of it, we had 16 chapters in four countries, which wow. was just amazing. And I mean, we had a, a membership of over 10,000 people. Um, wow. And it, it, was, it was awesome. I mean, th- there were times that I would go to conferences or work events and people knew me more as the founder of YTP than as the you know president <laughs> of KAI, which is hilarious. Um, and it, it had tons of potential, but what had happened was, the six of us who started it just kept growing in our careers in the industry and, you know, time becomes your most valuable resource. And sure. YTP was, was not a profitable organization because we didn't have someone running it like a business. It was a networking group and it was a second or third thought for most of us who, when we were in our mid twenties at much earlier stages of our career, we had that time to really run it and grow it and do, do what the justice it deserved. Mm-hmm. Um, However, after six, seven years and building it to what it was, it was just, the demands were far beyond what any of us had the time to look after. And if KAI wasn't my company or if I wasn't, you know, going to own it in the next couple of years at that time, I, I would have hundred percent just taken YTP and run it as a business and, and taken that in the entrepreneurial spirit behind it. Um, unfortunately, none of the other five felt that way. Um, they all wanted to kind of go about their careers Mm-hmm. And then we try to hand off to another group of kind of young people coming up that we identified as capable. And it, it shortly thereafter, it kind of just fell apart because no one had the time and energy to put towards it to actually do with it what it deserved. Um, mm-hmm. Which it was, you know, it was, a, it was looking back a really bittersweet chapter in my travel career because it was incredible what we accomplished and how cool it was. And I mean, it was so noticed in the industry and so known, and people were proud to be a part of it. And the fact that it folded, I mean, it's heartbreaking when you look at all the blood, sweat, and tears and time and effort that went into it. But I think it served its purpose. Um, And it also helped me kind of build a bit of a reputation in the industry when I was starting fresh. It helped me connect with tons of people. I mean, I have lifelong friends now. I have business partners now that I met at one of these kind of mixers or networking events that I helped organize. So the value that I got out of it is immeasurable, and I don't regret a second of it. It is just sad Mm -hmm. to see something that you're so passionate about ultimately crumble.
1: Yeah. What were the biggest lessons, learning lessons from that whole experience in running that organization?
0: Never have too many cooks in the kitchen. I feel like if it was was three of us, it it would still be something today or we would have sold it for a boatload of money or we would have done something with it. Mm -hmm. When it was six people with very different ideas of what should be done, can be done, nothing gets done. Um, so I, I, think if I ever started a new venture or pursued a new idea, I three would be the ideal number five max to kind of really run the something or do it yourself. <laughs> um, it, but in, in, the beginning, you know, we did need the manpower and that broader network of, of contacts to make it what it was. But at the end of the day, I, I do honestly believe if it was three of us involved, it would still be running today. That that's by far the biggest lesson I'd say I learned from that.
1: Yeah. Do you ever see starting it back up again in the future?
0: Um, no, man, I'm not young anymore. <laughs> <laughs> You're not gonna listen to an old guy and come to an event I set up. Um, no, I mean I, I think there is room for something similar in the in the industry and yeah, there is cool something to, similar. And and it's cool because um there have been some spin-offs. Um you know the the New York chapter, um, which was our original one, as well as the Toronto chapter. Um, they they've continued to run with it, kind of rebranded, and are still doing some of the similar things we did on a much smaller scale. But that's great to see. Um, but yeah, I mean, in in the future, I um, I think there's definitely room for that type of group and organization. There's lots of organizations organizations in the travel industry for networking and career development. Um, but that one, that one was unique because nothing like that existed before, but yeah, I mean, if right. I saw an opportunity to kind of start something else, build something else, and I had the bandwidth without a question i, w- I would pursue that again mm-hmm. It's fun right. of passion projects, they just can't have too many <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, 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 right no, for sure so getting into these uh last last few questions here, uh what does your daily routine look like
0: um I mean. When I'm home, I guess daily routine, pre-COVID, I'm going to go with. Yeah, pre-COVID. <laughs> Pre-COVID. It's certainly changed. Um, so when I was home, so you know, that 50% of the time that I was going to the office, I uh, wake up in the morning, usually 6.30, 7-ish. Um, since we do deal in so many international time zones, the first thing I do is look at my emails, uh, my WhatsApps, just to see if there's anything that requires immediate attention. You know, right. If I have to communicate with someone in Thailand that day, I need to get back to them as soon as I get up or they're going to be asleep. So um, mm-hmm. that'd be the first thing. Um, then usually go for a run. Not always. I was a slacker sometimes, but do that. <laughs> just to clear your head, get a little bit of exercise in, come back, have my coffee, shower, and um, head to the office for the day. When you get in, um, I think something important is never to go straight to your desk, sit down, and, and start doing your emails. Ha- have a second to like, think about your day. Um, and even if you do it the day before and, and start a list before you shut down for the day before, but I like to do it in the morning, um, especially because I will then have seen my emails and kind of have a rough idea of, of what I'm getting into. Um, make a list. Um, I'm a big fan of that. Um, and if, if you don't get through it all that day, that's fine. Start list for to tomorrow from that same list. So then do list, then open emails. start getting back to people. Obviously have some scheduled calls and meetings in there, whatever else. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one of the most important things I think I do that all my staff does now, I don't require it, but they, they like the concept is close your emails, your outlook for at least one hour every day. I find you can far too often get distracted from what you're doing and anyone, everyone thinks they're great multitaskers, but if you can spend an hour focusing on some other project without seeing your emails pop up or going to open an email just to quickly respond, you're going to be so much more productive. Um, if you can just focus on one thing. So for at least an hour, every day, I, I close outlook. I mean, p- people think we live in an era where you have to respond in 30 seconds and it, you should respond same day without a question. But if someone emails you and you don't respond in the next 10 minutes, it, it's okay. It's okay. They're not gonna be mad at you. <laughs> Take a yeah, deep yeah. breath. And I have to remind myself that sometimes um, it, it's, it's okay to wait a couple hours to respond to something. Um, mm-hmm. so I think that that's something I always do. Um, afternoon um I, I do a quick check-in with the staff usually before we leave for the day i mean speak throughout the day obviously but on that and then i usually head home i try i try to get out of the office at a reasonable hour since i do start my days pretty early so usually i leave about 5 30 ish um if something crazy is going on i'll stay later but i always kind of bring my computer home so if something does come up with a client and there's a lot of times i do have calls at 8 p.m 9 p.m because i'm speaking again to japan to right. thailand that type of stuff so often I am on the phone in the evening, um, but yeah, I guess that's about it. But like I said in the beginning, no, no two days are, are the same, um, yeah. which I absolutely love about this. You know, some days I've calls back to back to back. Some days I've none. some days I have online presentations. So it, it's different, but I do try to keep consistency with the getting up, looking at emails, run if I, if I, if I'm so inclined, and then that biggest thing is just turning off your emails and kind of focusing on something else for at least an hour.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Got it. And then as is the name of the podcast, the driving force podcast, what do you think has been your driving force throughout your life? That's
0: a tough question. And in fairness, you did kind of uh, brief me on it, but it's, it's, I, I don't know. Um, I've always had a competitive spirit. Um, as I said, I mean, I've been playing organized sports my whole life and it, it's, it's just this inner drive to just be the best at what you do. Um, so however that's defined at that moment in your life, just go do it. Um, as I said, when you're at MSG, if, if you're expected to do X, do Y and Z also. And, and that's just always been the way I've been. Um, you know, and that, that doesn't mean growing KAI to be the largest business doing what we do. But I think it's being the best at what we do with what we have. And, and I do think the, the delivery on what we promise um, and what we do for our clients is unparalleled in the industry um, for a firm of our size. And I can sleep well at night, put my head on the pillow knowing that. Um, so I think it's just this inner competitive spirit to be the best that just yeah. pushes me. So what, whatever you're doing, just kick ass at it. Yeah. And then my, awesome. my company motto for years, my, my staff laugh when I told them that when I'm interviewing or when we start, but work hard, play hard. If you're not busting your butt, um, you're going to hear it from me and play hard because especially in the travel industry, you have to be down to have some late nights, especially at these conferences because that's when you really make some of these connections, honestly, and the business is done after hours. So we right. do work hard and we play very hard. <laughs> People think it's a tagline, but no, it is a mantra for us at KAI.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. And then uh, lastly here, uh, before we wrap up, what, uh, what parting words of wisdom or advice around career would you like to leave the recent grad or young professional who's listening?
0: Sure. Sure. Um, I'm going to butcher it, but there's a saying, um, find a job doing something you love and you'll never work a day in your life. Um, and, and I do believe that to be true. Um, I would say obviously everyone's circumstances are different, but don't chase money, do something you love that you're passionate about. Um, another thing I always tell people when they ask me about working in travel, I tell them you don't get into travel to become rich. You get into travel, to become enriched because it adds so much to your life value and your life experiences, but it might not pad your bank account, but that's okay. I'm, I'm much happier mm-hmm. with that. Um, and then the other thing is always be mindful of your work-life balance. Um, you know, my, my, my days are long, but I'm very mindful to make sure I'm not ignoring, um, every other part of my life as well. Uh, my days are long cause I, I love work. I love what I do and I love my industry, but I also love other things. I have to make sure I don't take them for granted. Right. And, uh, it, it's, it's important to step away and reassess sometimes and make sure you are keeping a proper balance. So, um, keep that with you as you go up through your career.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think that's great. Awesome. Dave, thanks again for coming on the show. This is great.
0: Yeah, man. Thanks so much for having me. I am definitely going to give you a shout about Barbados Offline, get all your uh, recommendations and advice.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much,
0: man. Great job with the podcast. I love it. I've listened to a handful of them now and I'm definitely going to listen through to the rest as we go.
1: Oh, awesome. Thank you. Where can people go if they want to get in touch with you and learn more about KAI?
0: Um, Our website's the best, kainyc.com. Um, And then on there, there's links to the KI Foundation page if you want to learn more about that. Um, And obviously, the contact page, you're welcome to reach out to me if I can provide info, offer advice, whatever. I'm here to help. I like speaking to people, so reach out.
1: Awesome. And you can all also visit my website, ChaseRosa.com, and follow me on Instagram at ChaseRosa4 for updates on new episodes. Thanks, everyone who's listening, and see you next time.